You're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your stand-in host, Bruce Garrick. Today, we're going to be talking to Lee Brimacombe Wood, a return guest of ours, who has a number of uh, very fine board games to his credit. Uh, hello, Lee. Hi there. Uh, today, we're going to talk about um, Lee's game Bomber Command, which uh, was just recently uh, released. It uh, came out last month, I believe, uh, meaning in April. And uh, Lee's been uh, on the podcast before. We talked about a number of his designs and generally about uh, air warfare and air war game design in general. And I hope that we can uh, we can segue into that. We have a lot of things to uh, discuss. I know that we had um, sort of an abbreviated conversation last time, so maybe we can uh, let this one flow a little bit more. Uh, so, Lee, uh, I got your game. Uh, I was... Uh, uh, pleased to see it arrive uh, last month. I actually got a chance to test it out once. Um, I am not in any way sure that uh, my opponent and I played the game correctly. Uh, oh, that's we worrying. Had, uh, <laughs> yeah, there were we were finding different modifiers. Uh, you know, this the standard uh, first time through a game, uh, um, sort of uh, you know difficulties. But uh, it was very interesting for the audience. I will say that. Uh, Bomber Command is a game about uh, the uh, strategic bombing of Germany uh, by the British, which is uh, a different topic in uh, in uh, strategic bombing of World War II. Uh, I haven't really seen any night bombing games in the past. Lee, how did that? How did you decide you were going to do a, a, a Bomber Command game? Um, well, essentially, it came down to nobody had done it before. And uh, I'd looked at the, uh, the the possibility of making a uh, sort of an eighth Air Force game, and and it really it hadn't appealed for a number of reasons. Some of which were to do with it being quite a simple force-on-force force style um, scenario, and uh, you know with these big um, uh, American raids uh, bullying their way across the Reich, uh, facing waves of incoming fighters. But I was far more interested um, in the kind of the cat and mouse night battle, which nobody had really covered before. I mean, uh, in the, the time that uh, I actually made this game, uh, one game did come out on the subject that was quite specific to it, uh, Duel in the Dark, which is a slightly kind of Euro-ish uh, war game. Yes, yes, I'm familiar with that game. Uh, and and uh, a very good game. Uh, I, I'd like to recommend it to people out, out, out there. Um, and it was fascinating because I was well into um, uh, my design when, uh, when I first played Duel in the Dark, and it was, it was interesting that I could see signs of parallel development there. Particularly in terms of you know pre-plotting the raids and uh, a certain amount of uh, you know number of other similar mechanics, weather being important, uh, fuel for the uh, uh, the night fighter force being important, and so on. So uh, yeah, um, it really is un- un- underdone though, and uh, uh, I felt there was an opportunity there to do something quite interesting. Um, and I think I, the last I won't cover the last podcast because I think we talked about it in some detail there. But we uh, there were issues like the, the technological revolution in bombing and, uh, and other other issues that I thought, uh, and also the, the the electronic warfare battles and the, the technical battles that I thought we could bring out in in this game uh, that made it very interesting to me. Right. So so we yeah we had discussed that and, and we'll talk a little bit about that in uh, uh, the way that Bomber Command. Um, uh, brings that into the into the gameplay because uh, as as with seemingly every game uh, these days there is a deck and uh, there is card play 
And, um, you know, that it seems to me, I think designers have really settled on the, um, the mechanic of, of cards as being a great way to bring flavor into a game, uh, sort of almost for free in the sense that you can put a whole bunch of stuff on a card. You know, I'm, I'm looking just here at a, at a card from, uh, the Berlin scenario, Corona controllers. And, um, this basically is, uh, is um a way for the uh for the or it, historically it was a way for the uh, british uh, allies to interfere with the night fighter control and just having a um having a card do it uh you can have a picture on the card you can have description of the of the on the card and it's it's a way where you can sort of um bring you know sort of on block the whole the whole concept comes into the game just by by playing the card, and you can put a whole bunch of different things on cards. Uh, how how do you how do you see the 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 card play? Is 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 that what you're aiming for, or is it just? Um, I mean, what what problems does it solve for you? Uh, oh, the problems it solves are, are manifold. But I, I don't want to go back a little bit here because I mm-hmm. I kind of look at the usage of cards generally in the hobby at the moment, and I, I can't help feeling that there are. Now, they're a bit of a cheat for us designers, really. Mm-hmm. Um, they are a, a means by which we can introduce a lot of very strong narrative elements into a game uh, very, very cheaply. And, uh, you know, I quite cheerfully admit, and I'm, I'm very, very guilty of this here in Bomber Command, uh, I think the two things that came out to me uh, were, was one kind of the, the, the narrative generation, which I think the cards do quite admirably, is that you get these little moments that come out of, uh, you know, I play Flensburg, but okay, but I counter with, uh, with such and such a card, I counter uh, with radio silence or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that, you know, you can get these sort of neat little interactions there, which, which kind of give uh, uh, the players a sense of some of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the stories that came out from uh, the deployment of all these kind of complex systems. And it also just allowed me to simplify and get rid of an awful lot of guff uh, from, the, uh, from the design. We talked about one of my early games, Downtown, uh, the last time we did the, did the podcast. And uh, I think that downtown was one of those what I call kind of kitchen sink designs, which in, in the sense that you throw everything in, including the kitchen sink. And I had modifiers for everything. I, I, I tried to detail every single system and so on. And uh, I know a lot of people love the game and so on, but now I'm sort of kind of like maturing as a designer. I look back on that and go like, well, you know, that's a very... It's a very clumsy and process-heavy way of, of, of doing uh, the design. And maybe there's a, a simpler way. Maybe there, there's a way I can get more bang for buck um, uh, by uh, you know, having as much narrative for less process. And certainly things like cards are very, very appealing to a designer because you, know, you, you can do this. Plus, of course, they have that, that lovely kind of you know, tactile uh, element there. I mean, players love playing cards. They love the interaction. It's something they understand. It's very ludic. And so it's a very accessible way to, uh, to, to sort of throw this, this, uh, you know, th- this narrative and this history uh, into the game. Um, it, it, it tends to sugar the pill quite nicely. Yeah. So I, I will, uh, I will, for the uh, audience that has not played the game, I just want to describe the game since we're talking about the cards. It is, it is not really a card-driven game in that sense. It really is. I mean, you, you talk about modifiers. The game does have plenty of modifiers. Yes, yeah, so this is what um, I, I would call a card-modified game, definitely. Yes. 
yeah, that, that's a, I think a good good way to phrase it because the the um, uh, the systems in the game. First of all, it's played on a on a beautiful map. Um, I really like the uh, the night fighter and the night fighter being the um, the tactical uh, element. Previous previous game tactical uh, depiction of the night fighter um, attack uh, combat and uh, with the bomber command. Um, I like the night fighter and the bomber command maps, which are you know they're dark because it's dark outside. I mean it's a, it's such a simple um, it's such a simple presentation element, but it it really works uh, beautifully, I think. So, but it is a hex it is a hex map. Um, you have counters. Uh, there's movement on the map uh, that's not driven by the cards uh, themselves. Um, it's very it feels very uh, it feels very much like a traditional war game in that sense. Um, but there are actually very few things that are actually moving. That was one of the things that um, that we noticed uh, when we were playing was that uh, it's a plotted movement game. So until the raid and 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 there are only in, there are only there are two scenarios um, for our listeners. There's a Berlin scenario, which is the uh, early uh, early part of the campaign scenario, and then there's the uh, downfall scenario, which is the um, later part of the uh, campaign scenario. And um, you only really are going to have one or two main forces. So once until the main force is detected, that's all on a plotting map. Uh, and then you have other raids such as uh, mosquito raids, which are also plotted. And, and um, so it, it's just you, you get this whole map set up. My feeling was that you sort of uh, you set the map up and then you sort of do nothing. Uh, or at least the map doesn't um, doesn't change much until... Uh, things start happening. I thought that was a really the way that that works is sort of a nice um, uh, depiction of how I'm sure the uh, you know the the air defense controllers were sort of um, you know they have this this big map of Germany but they're not really sure what's happening and all of a sudden uh, a, a raid pops up. Uh, d- did you have any uh, when you, when you were designing the 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 game and the systems? Did you have this the sense that you would um, there would be a lot of plotted movement, obviously. Uh, or did you? Did you? I know plotted movement for some people kind of um, it's a it's a sticking point for them because it means that they can't really play it. Um, you can't play it solitaire. Uh, was that there, were there any thoughts of trying to make it a non plotted movement game, or did you come out with that from the beginning? Uh, I'm just a terrible designer, I'm afraid. Probably a very lazy <laughs> one. Uh, I, I really haven't thought of um, solutions around that problem. Uh, I think because I'm so invested in generating a particular two-player experience. Um, mm-hmm. And I, know, I understand that, in fact, some ways it's an experience that not everybody will like and not everybody mm-hmm. uh, 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 digs. Um, but uh, nevertheless, I think it's a quite a true experience. You have, uh, uh, and it's a, it's a common mechanic to my, some of my other raid scale games like Downtown and, and The Burning Blue. You know, one side essentially, you know, you, you're a mission planner. You plot your raid. You, mm-hmm. you know, you say when you're going to hit the target. Uh, uh, you know, where your forces are going, where your diversionary forces are, are going. And then, then you kind of you sit back at base, and uh, you know you sit there uh, tapping your fingers on the desk, um, you know, waiting to see how many bombers make it home. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, 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 it's that kind of experience I'm trying to get, and I understand in some ways this is not uh, not a, a kind of game for everybody because. Um, 
a lot of war games, people want a lot of back and forth and to and fro. And we try and do that a little bit with the card play. I mean, the card play, I think, right. is a substitute for this. It's something we didn't have, for example, in in the Burning Blue or, or, or Downtown. Um, uh, but, but but here we do. We, we allow the players to, to, to have a little bit of back and forth and interaction with the cards. But... Yeah, really. I mean, if you're the, you're the guy plotting the raids, you're you're sitting there just uh, you know seeing how many guys uh, uh, come home, and, yeah. uh, and it, how many people take the bait, and basically how much uh, the German player takes the bait. Well, German player yeah. sitting there, he's got his own troubles. You know, there's this great yeah, big right. wandering monster out there, you know, Dungeons right. and Dragons style, and you've got to identify where the heck it is, and uh, and then pounce on it and, and do your best to to respond. And sometimes, you know, the the, the gods are with you, and uh, you identify the, the the direction of the raid early. Sometimes you don't find out until t until too late, and then uh, you know you have to improvise with with what you. Have have and uh, so it, it, uh, it can be kind of a, quite a wild ride I think for the, the, the Luftwaffe player, uh, the German player. Um, I have to say I've, I enjoy being the British player in this, I mean I'm going to say that because I'm the designer, you know I get the, right. I get the rights to boast about my own game but mm -hmm. I, I genuinely like the tension of seeing my plan uh, unfold and then seeing how the other guy responds to it and also the fact that cause, because I'm plotting these raids with all these diversions and so on, I'm, I'm I've come up with some scheme to spoof the the, the player, and it's a, it's a joy to see that if if that that gets pulled off, and of course it's right. uh, very annoying if he sees right through my evil plans and uh, and, mm -hmm. and manages to, to to wreck them. So uh, I think there are very different pleasures for players, but I, I'll fully admit that uh, the the format of the game means that uh, you know it's not your conventional war game experience, and, and not all gamers will uh, will appreciate uh, the pleasures that. You know some of the gameplay has to offer right well i think one of the things that um i noticed about the game from when i sat down to play it was that uh, uh i immediately had to have my uh i, I played the british player uh, and i had my uh, opponent go and get uh get us some food because uh i was going to sit down pulled my my raid chits and uh um decided uh, I, I was gonna have to plot everything so and that took quite a while um i can see how uh uh, this would be a great um, uh, play-by-email game because uh, you could basically just, you know, have your chits chosen, then you write that down. There's no time lost. Uh, I can see in the future, uh, I may, if, if there's a, a limited time, because we played a, a game store that's a little ways away, that uh, we would agree to have somebody just select the target and then uh, have uh, have me come with, you know, whoever's going to play the British player would pre-plot everything oh, so absolutely absolutely i think this is i, I let's say up front maybe it, it's not a it's not an easy pickup game because yes maybe i mean i can plot a raid quite quickly in fact i designed this game so that unlike my previous games the raid plotting phase can be over with very very quickly but mm. still you know it, it does take your time you know you may take a take five minutes to mm. uh or in my case a couple of minutes to write out the mm. plot and and go through the preparation whereas uh, one of the things that I think is common to all of these raid scale games that I've made with the pre-plotting is that I think they suit the kind of player who... Well, I'm sure we've all done this as board gamers. Uh, we've all done the thing where we've, we've taken... We've got a brand new game and uh, we've cracked open the plastic and we've opened it and sniffed the lovely new game smell. <laughs> and then uh, we lay out everything, punch the counters, and we, we lay out the scenario. And then it kind of like we think through the first move. You know, it's a real kind of um, Holmesian three-pipe problem. And we kind of sit there and you muse over it a little while and then you pack the game up and you, you put it away. 
Yeah. Well, what I've done is I've designed games for that kind of, of player because now you can you can sit there and you can have your three pipe problem and you can you know you can pick your chits, decide your target, plot your raid, and then you know if you want to pack up at the end of the evening without having you know played anything with anybody, you've got your plan there. You've got your plot waiting for the um, the evening when your pal comes round and you've got something ready and set up to go. So uh, yeah. I think there are, you know, there's there's various ways of getting around this, and it, it does favour the kind of player who who might just want to cheerfully spend the evening before he actually plays, just plotting what he wants to do. Right. Yeah. That's a that's a that's a um, uh, I think something that that people can easily do bef before the game's played, and uh, then get the additional pleasure of playing the game. Tell tell uh, tell us a little more about how when you were des designing the the game. Um, you clearly have it's a it's a it's an asymmetric game because you have the uh, bomber stream with diversionary raids on one side, and then you have a very uh, passive uh, Luftwaffe on the other side that then you know has to spring into action when when threats are encountered. Um, how how did you um, how did you sort of put everything decide that you, you know what what was going to be on the map, what was going to be hidden, what was going to be um, you know. Made, I noticed that you made raid chits that you, uh, you sort of you, you don't get to pick the raids similar similarly to um, uh, for example um, burning blue where you draw a chit and that's the, the the raids that you have to you have to make um, the game can play very differently based solely on that on that the raid chit that you draw mm -hmm. for the uh, target for tonight well to be honest there's nothing stopping the players from picking a chit uh, in fact I think in I, I make some recommendations in the playbook about how you can do that in fact in the uh, since the game's come out, I've put together some campaign rules for people which allow you to to pick chits. But I thought the random picking just instantly communicates to the player, to the, particularly to the German player, that you don't know where the target is. You have mm -hmm. no idea. And uh, because we've taken the decision away from the British player as to where he's hitting, then he's not going to pick an easy target. It may be a difficult target for him. So that was really the thinking behind the sort of random selection. But the process of actually putting the design together is, oh, it's it's quite a complicated thing. I mean, uh, I think I kind of have to go back and think about how I design games in general because uh, it it takes a while sometimes for the design to coalesce. Uh, in some cases, and I think particularly with because I'm uh, I do the graphics for my own games, and uh, I'm kind of. Oh, you do! I didn't realize that. No, I'm, I'm the graphic designer. I'm afraid everything everything you see on the on there, except for the box art, is uh, is mine. So, um, but it means that I actually think about things graphically sometimes, and and there are uh, sometimes design decisions get made because I have a very clear vision of some of how something might look on a table. So, for example, the map. Is is part of that thinking, uh, and the map and the thinking about the scales and uh, the length of the game and all these things kind of all fold into decisions that come from an image in my head of what the what the map should look like. And in this case, the the, the inspiration for the map was um, uh, comes from my my friend John Butterfield's uh, great Battle of Britain game design, Battle Over Britain, mm -hmm. uh, where uh, he produced this map. Um, of uh, of of Britain with these enormous hexes. I've forgotten how big they are. They're like about an inch and a half or two inches. And I, I've wanted for years to make a map uh, with with two inches, two inch hexes. And uh, it, it seemed to me that uh, because I wanted to be quite um, 
if you like, uh, very chunky in the way in the granularity of the game. That mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, I didn't want to be. I didn't want a game that went on for hours and hours. I had a very definite game length in mind, sort of an, uh, an hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours, something in that region. Um, you know, a map with uh, with large hexes, with a small um, footprint in terms of the you know the, the the number of hexes that you had to traverse to get to a target and back. Uh, right. All these sort of things started feeding into decisions on the scaling. And uh, I spent a lot of time going backwards and forwards on, on what the scale uh, the, the game should be. And uh, in this case, I came up with this sort of like roughly half hour um, time scale for, for game turns and about 50 mile hexes. And uh, this kind of worked out okay because uh, for a kind of a, uh, the, the Battle of Berlin era raid, a raid ba uh, bomber stream would probably be around about 150 miles long, something in that of that order. And so, you know, three hexes, uh, you're, you're this kind of wandering monster snaking across the map, three hexes long, just seemed like a good, uh, you know, like a good balance. And, uh, you know, so, like I say, lots of decisions tend to get made from coming from all sorts of directions, some some graphic and visual, some from having to start thinking about uh, you know game mechanics and some from thinking about and reading about the history. And um, I mean the, the process of, of design generally starts with um, you know sometimes just just these odd little random thoughts, some about what the graphics should be, some because I'm just it's launching me into reading and then I'm trying to to read through a lot of books and trying to take on board information and then uh, synthesize that into something which can become a uh, set of game mechanics. And uh, then the kind of the critical phase after that is what um, I call storyboarding, which is a very, very important um, period of the design. And How do you it, storyboard a game like this? What you do is you start breaking down um, the game uh, into what you would expect to see. And for a game like this, for example, what I was doing was I was actually looking at actual raid nights. I did a, did a heck of a lot of reading. And um, I, I, like, uh, I like spreadsheeting lots of things. If you, uh, you look at the way I design games, I have oodles of spreadsheets. And so what I would do is, I'd, for example, I'd take a, a night's raiding and I would try and break it down in, in a spreadsheet into you know, the actions and decisions that were made on a particular night. And from that, I start getting a picture of where the decision points were made historically. And then I can start thinking, well, how can I then now take all this information, these decision points, and I can convert it into um, game decisions? So what decision points would you look at for a storyboard like this? Uh, for example, when, uh, when were Gruppen scrambled? Uh, when, when were raids detected? When were Gruppen scrambled? When did the Gruppen reach uh, the Himmelbeck boxes? Uh, when was contact made with the raid? Uh, you know, when were, were, were bombing on um, diversionary targets? When did that happen? You know, lots of things like this. And you, you, you begin to, it's a great, great tool. Um, uh, very powerful tool. You end up learning an awful lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily come out from the conventional narratives. Because when you start bringing, you know, if you like, breaking things down into its atomic components. Sorry, the the the, the uh, I, as your you you know, and I don't know whether your listeners know. I work for a, a software developer. I uh, I work as a, a computer games designer, 
um, uh, currently for Rubisoft, uh, working on a game called Far Cry 3. And uh, one of the things that we do is uh, practice uh, this company is a process called rational level design, which is where we take uh, design of, uh, of a game, the game mechanics, and we break them down into what we call their, their atomic components. And uh, we then start analysing those to see how they work and how they interact with each other and what we can do, if you like, what, uh, what things we can pull on, what little numbers and figures and other kind of mechanics we can, we can pull on and, and adjust in order to get a certain kind of gameplay effect. And this is something that starts coming out from the, um, the storyboard analysis. I think once you've, you've got all this data there, you can start fitting it together in your head into what might be you know, a coherent framework, an armature of uh, design. And uh, you know, this is certainly what I, I, I did on Bomber Command and what, is, what I'm doing on other games uh, concepts at the moment. And uh, from this you get, if you like, the first armature of your design and then you kind of go into a second phase of reading which is where you're actually testing the game and then you're, you're now starting to try and uh, do go through V&V, &V, validation and verification of your design against history. And so one, one of the things that I, that I noticed from, from the reading that I've done is that those things that you're talking about, um, all, it all comes down to, you know, where the bombs land and how the bombers attempt to control where the bombs land with, you know, the, the, uh, the bombing leader and the the target marking and you've gone to great lengths to really kind of put all that physically into the game was that an early decision that you were going to just because it, i mean it's pretty extraordinary actually from i've never seen a game do bombing like this you have uh maps of individual cities not obviously not each each city doesn't have an individual map but there are uh different uh maps based on the size of the city and you pull a a map uh, that corresponds to the city for that uh, time, and then start placing the actual, you know, the bomber streams on there, the uh, where the target is, uh, aiming point is, where the um, uh, various um, flares go, uh, and then where the bombs fall. The, the you even represent the uh, you know firestorms on the map. It's uh, I mean it's it's something that I've really never seen done before. How did how did that all come out? It's it's really wild. I think it came out from a realization that um, that if I didn't represent this in detail, I think we would be missing a very, very important aspect of the narrative. Uh, I think we talked when we we last spoke on the podcast uh, about kind of like the moral dimension of the game. Yes. That th yes. There were you know there are some people who are very very nervous about. Uh, uh, games that, that represent civilian attacks, and I think uh, I really wanted to be very explicit about what we were doing. I, I did feel that the cowardly way out would have been to do what a lot of other games have done in these situations, and just have the raid fly over the target and wander away with uh, you know a victory point count. You know, roll a dice. Uh, this is how good your bombing is. That's your victory points for the bombing. And I don't think that told enough of the story. And I think some of this came from showing, uh, needing to show how area bombing, bombing functioned, but also from so, so, uh, to show the kind of technical revolution in bombing that happened, particularly since in the two periods of the game, because we have uh, the first scenario, Berlin, covers really, it's the Battle of Hamburg up to the Battle of Berlin. 
and kind of finishes with the, uh, the, the devastating uh, raid on Nuremberg. Well, I say devastating, devastating to the RAF. They, they lost a mm-hmm. phenomenal number of bombers to the, uh, uh, to the German defences. But uh, this, uh, then we, go, we get to the late period of the war after the, the, the transportation plan that was, that was uh, uh, conducted in, in Normandy uh, where the, the RAF really learnt how to uh, conduct precision bombing against the French railway system. And we have a very, very different animal here. We have, a, a, if you like, a technical revolution in precision. And all of a sudden, uh, uh, for this latter period of the war, um, uh, attacks on precision targets like transportation and oil become very feasible, uh, whereas before they had been, uh, been very, very hard to prosecute. Yeah, well, you have, you have the, there are different victory points, uh, sorry, different uh, victory points are earned in the different scenarios for what gets bombed. Uh, is that because there was really not the ability to, to make these pinpoint attacks uh, in the, in the, in the uh, Berlin scenario? Because basically in the Berlin scenario, you just get, uh, um, you basically get points for starting fires. That's what, that's what we got out of the, out of the game. Uh, and then later on uh, in the downfall scenario, it, you still get uh, you get points for starting fires, but uh, you get um, you basically get points for uh, um, uh, be, being closer to your aim point. Yes, I think for the the, the Battle of Berlin era, uh, I mean, all the time RAF the RAF was searching for precision. And occasionally, some nights they could achieve it, and and but quite often they didn't. And so it was the era in which uh, the uh, area bombing and the policy of uh, dehousing, which is what they called it, this kind of rather weasel-worded uh, 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 terminology that was used at the time. Uh, it was the the kind of the the, the era in which that was uh, that that ran policy, um, but. Uh, after the Overlord, um, this was it was much harder, I think, for Harris to uh, purely prosecute the area bombing. He now had a, a had a, a tool that was actually a lot more precise and a lot more more um, uh, uh, accurate than it had ever been before. And so, um, and he was also under a lot of pressure to to take part in these precision bombing campaigns. You know, they'd already the bomber command had already pro- proved themselves against the transportation system. Uh, so. Uh, targets like oil and, and transportation were suddenly became a very very big part of the, uh, the, the bomber command's work, and so I think for the second scenario we reflect this by basically uh, awarding the uh, the British player points for attack, attacking these precision targets. If they're attacking a transportation target or attacking a, an industrial target, then they uh, uh, they get a lot of extra points for this. And so if you like, we're, we're trying to reflect here the, the 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 way that policy had shifted away from oh we'll let you get away with area bombing to no no we we need you focused on on hitting these pinpoint targets. Now wasn't there also a question because I know that the oil uh, oil bombing sort of came out later in the war that was a that was a late war sort of uh, revelation to the to the target planners um, and I think that Harris there was some resistance on his part wasn't there to 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 changing his strategy at all. Yes, he had this uh, bee in his bonnet about. Uh, what he called panacea targets, and uh, he, the, the 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 various boffins at the the, the uh, Ministry of Economic Warfare, had uh, essentially been telling him, you know, you hit these particular targets, hit, tho- hit those particular targets, then uh, the war will be over in six months, and and he felt that he tried this and it had failed, and uh, uh, he was just had no faith in them at all. So um, he was very resistant to uh, people saying, you know, this target or that target system 
or that particular target complex was was uh, had unique, uh, you know, particularly unique uh, effects on the economy. Actually, in what we find out is uh, with not only with hindsight, but also I think at the time is that the first of all the Ministry of Economic Warfare had a um, fairly shrewd uh, intelligence on uh, on how things were working. Uh, uh, you know what what. Uh, particularly, say for example, what the output of the, the oil system uh, of, of oil production was in the Reich. Uh, what they didn't necessarily have was the tool to uh, that was sufficiently accurate enough to hit these targets. And also, I think the other important thing, particularly in a campaign, and this is this is often often overlooked, is the uh, the necessity for restrikes on targets. I think the history of uh, of strategic bombing is one that of of where. Uh, failure is often compounded by the failure to restrike targets. Uh, you know, the ball bearings is a, is a famous one. I mean, the ball bearings were one of the panacea targets that Harris would uh, uh, often rail on about. But nevertheless, I think Speer said sometime later on uh, that if the the, the the attacks on ball bearings had been sustained, it could have been, been had a quite crippling effect. And right. The, the, the problem with that was, though, that I think that the Eighth Air Force simply physically couldn't do it. I mean, the, the Regensburg Schweinfurt raid was, you know, crippled. I mean, the, the, the bomber losses were so large that um, uh, that they, they really couldn't have repeated the raids to the scale that Speer felt would have been meaningful. Well, but this is all true, but I mean, there's also the element of, of um, Harris not really participating in that attack when he perfectly well could have done. And, uh, you know, Bomber, Bomber Command could have contributed to that. And I think there are many opportunities uh, m missed along those lines. There's some fascinating stuff. Uh, I've been reading, uh, as I'm sure many people have, uh, Adam Tuzzi's wonderful uh, book, Wages of Destruction, on, uh, mm -hmm. on the, the, the German economy, on the, on right. the Nazi economy, uh, which has a, a fascinating ch a table showing the effects of the, the Battle of the Ruhr uh, on uh, uh, steel production. And how it essentially stopped um, uh, some of the armaments uh, 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 miracle, if you like, in its tracks. And so, the, 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 Tews kind of makes a very interesting point about uh, Harris uh, pursuing manufacturing rather than raw materials in his bombing policy, and that uh, here was possibly another opportunity missed. So, I, I think there are. This is also outside of the scope of the game, too, though. <laughs> Sorry, yes. Correct? I think that may yeah. be in the scope of another game. I, I've been thinking for a long while of doing a game specifically on this subject. I, I, I even have a tentative title for it: Bomber Barons. Uh, really? Which would be yes, create an economic model and then uh, then uh, have the um, uh, one or maybe even two players play the uh, the, the combined bomber offensive and, and try and wreck the economy, and it would sort of be a, what? be a game of intelligence and uh, uh, and targeting. Well, one of the things you would have to incorporate in that game would be the uh, allied players arguing with each other. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the kind of things that led up to the point blank directive and all the kind of the strange equivocations that essentially meant that. Um, uh, Harris was given a directive to play nice, but it was worded in a way that he could cheerfully ignore. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, I mean it would be that 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 would be kind of an interesting game to make because uh, it would takes us up a, a yet another scale, if you like, from Bomber Command. Bomber Command is very much faced, very much based around the raid, you know, a single operation, whereas uh, with something like a, a, the, the the Bomber Barons concept, we'd be moving really into. Uh, true operations, uh, which 
I think I, I've talked about this elsewhere, but uh, I see operational scale as focusing on, on very, very big issues. It faces on, focuses on things like uh, basing, sortie generation, targeting, uh, intelligence that feeds into the targeting decisions, uh, and so on. In fact, the, the, the kind of like the, the execution side of it, the, the raid flying thing is, is way down in the weeds uh, at that scale and, and probably highly abstracted. Uh, mm-hmm. But yes, it's, yeah, well, this is this is this is in in sort of the the, the game is is uh, consistent with your other games and your rate your your rate scale game. Um, sorry, I, I didn't quite catch you there. I mean, consistent in what well, way? It, you said uh, consistent. I mean, it, you're talking about all these other decisions that would that need to be made, but that you're the very properly in in Bomber Command. The game is consistent in the sense that that the level of decision making is all about the raid and not about you know what targets are chosen and the things that we were discussing earlier. Yes, yes, that's that's right. I mean, I, I have a, a bee in my bonnet, if you like, about getting scaling right. I mean, we, we accept in, in war games that uh, the player usually wears uh, more than one hat. I mean, they wear uh, the hat of an echelon commander and maybe the, the echelon below that. Um, but we try and avoid having the player wear too many hats. Otherwise, you know, he could. We don't want somebody who is a battalion commander and at the same time is actually, you know, um, uh, a theatre commander uh, directing the whole war effort. Some games actually offer, almost offer, those kind of levels of, of, of decision making. But I, I've always felt that they tended to skew and distort the model when you have that level of uh, integrated control all the way up and down the, the command chain. So I like to focus games on uh, on one or two. Um, echelons, and then uh, you know, as you say, make it kind of like a proper focus of, of of the players' decisions, and not try and broaden it too much. I think this uh, right. this, this problem with operations and and raids is a, is a common one with a lot of air games. I mean, the, the Battle of Britain games tend to suffer from it an awful lot. The, there, you see a, very commonly a mix of of the operational decision making. And uh, and often the raid level decision making, and uh, it's it's an unhappy mix. I mean, there's a there's a game on, um, uh, uh, I think it was the old Flying Fortress game from SPI, which was recently remade by Decision Games as uh, U.S. Army Air Force, uh, which okay. does exactly this kind of thing. Is it's, it's almost actually in some ways uh, the the bomber baron's concept in that it's it's got like a uh, you know a lot of e- economic target complexes for the player to aim for. And there's a lot of cool, interesting stuff there to do with uh, with, with targeting. Mm-hmm. And then, but then it has this kind of like, uh, oh, you get to fly a raid. And I'm, sort of, I'm right. kind of going, you know, what? <laughs> really? Uh, and it seems in- entirely unnecessary that uh, to to make the game f- game fun at that level, you have to then, you know, um, throw the players a bone by having them them try and you know fly a bomber raid across the map. Uh, and I understand that's fun. I think but that's I, what that. I'd rather have them as two yeah, separate people games. People get fun out of that. I understand. How how would you go about uh, resolve? Then then how would you uh, go about resolving the results? I guess we're we're getting into the uh, into this this uh, theoretical game that you might be uh, designing sometime in the future. How would you uh, resolve the uh, decisions that were that were made by the by the players about targeting? I think uh, the focus that I've been thinking of is uh, targeting. Uh, so in, in this case, which in, uh, sorry. Let's go backwards a moment. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, the focus, I think, is very much on uh, intelligence. 
And I think uh, it, the intelligence is, uh, is what feeds into the targeting decisions. Uh, there's a fabulous book by a guy called uh, Robert uh, Ehlers uh, called Targeting the Third Reich, which I, I highly recommend to everybody. And it, it talks specifically about air intelligence and, and how this influenced the Allied bombing campaign. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff up there about you know exactly how good and in some cases how bad that information was. Uh, and it's actually quite interesting that the in many cases the, uh, the a lot of the big players had fairly good information and fairly accurate information on what was going on in the in the um, the, the, the the German economy. But uh, nevertheless, they made some very strange and idiosyncratic and highly political decisions. Uh, that I think well, what is going to be a very, very big challenge is how you have the the, the, the policy level uh, would influence uh, this game, and that's the, that's the nut I think that would I would have to to crack, because I think the rest of it is, for example, the economic model is something that I've got a kind of a framework in my head as, as to how that might work. Uh, I mean, in particular, one of the, one of the interesting things about the the way that the, the the German economy disintegrated was that it seems to have have been uh, if you like, almost a, 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 it wasn't just one single blow. It was a series of blows. It was a synergy. It was uh, not one single target complex like oil. It was a number of complexes like oil and transportation and these other things, mm -hmm. which which slowly kind of grew. And so I think um, I could build an economic model whereby uh, the the like the key nodes in that uh, in in uh, the target complexes. Uh, were known to the German, but maybe not known to the the Allied player, and the Allied player has to try and determine from the economic information coming back to him where those key nodes were, and so he has to almost kind of almost search out what uh, what the what the uh, uh, the vulnerable points were in the economy, and then once he has got those, then he can start hammering on them quite effectively. So well, that's that's a that's a problem for for a game that uh, I assume that if you're going to have a historical game, those nodes would be the same. So yes, you, I think you in have practice what knowledge problem. Yeah, you have the foreknowledge problem. So I think in practice, what you do is you say, well, these are these are the historical ones if you want to play them. But actually, we're going to randomise these a little bit. I see. So this Got this time it. around, we'll say that it's not going to be say oil and transport and and steel, but it's going to be you know these these other things were 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 the the, the key nodes, and you just mix it up a little bit. So I think you you end up getting a little bit ludic there and uh, you're saying oh well, the pattern this time is red green blue last time it was purple yellow and, and white <laughs> right right so uh, and you'd also have um, I mean the 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 question about the you you actually answered this uh, question last time but I wanted to bring it up again because um, it, I thought it was such a great answer that you had mentioned that it was very difficult to um, model uh, rational decision making when you had an irrational actor um, that's one of the um, reasons that you uh, wanted to take the uh, targeting of raids away from the German player in Burning Blue. Um, and um, I think that uh, what everything you've just discussed and what we've been discussing sort of points to that exact, uh, exact problem where, for example, uh, the Allies didn't um, target synthetic oil plants nearly as soon. They, they, I don't know if they didn't have the uh, intelligence. Maybe I should read uh, uh, Ehler's book. And find out, but um, uh, whether they didn't realize the the impact that synthetic oil was having on the German economy, and uh, those plants were sort of unmolested for a long time. Um, but uh, if you happen to know that at the beginning of the game, then obviously you can think of a a uh, you know an optimal strategy before you even started playing. Yes, I mean uh, yes, I think there's there's a number of things. One is obviously an information vacuum. 
but the, the problem here in some ways we've got is that the information was there, it was available, it was just a case of whether that was that information packaged and processed and presented to the key mm -hmm. players in a, in a manner in which they kind of understood the ramifications of it. And it's clear, this is, this is where I think the game design problem gets rather knotty and we're again moving into the sphere of, of the, you know, how do you model the irrational actor? Because uh, it's clear that you know personality and politics and so on did start playing a very big role in decision making at, at this level, um, and I I don't really have a simple answer to this yet. It's uh, I, I'm still wrapping uh, wrapping my head around it, and uh, there may be a eureka moment uh, uh, one night where I wake up and suddenly have the the solution lucid and clear like a like a <laughs> diamond in my head. Uh, sure. I don't quite have it yet, so so I wish I could give a give an easy answer for you, but I I really don't. Um, actually, on, the, on this subject of, of design, of the idea of, uh, of how do you model the irrational actor, actually there's, a, there's almost a corollary to that. Uh, no, actually it was, was not a corollary. But there, there, there's almost like an opposite uh, scenario here, which I think mm -hmm. is also worth talking about as a design problem. And this is uh, that of how do you um, model a, uh, a, a rational actor with irrational players? And this is actually quite a common design problem in war games. I, I mention this because, I'm sorry, we're kind of wandering off track, wandering away from sure, Bonacomart here. Sure, keep going, keep going. But uh, I mean, uh, one of the game, game ideas that I've been thinking around for, uh, for a long time is uh, uh, about making a Falklands game. And I've mm -hmm. invested quite a lot of time into, into doing a lot of basic research and, and thinking about this and actually have a, a I feel like a, a design um, uh, sitting around on the shelves at the moment. But... Uh, I'm actually seeing this as as a as a big failure for me at the moment. It's one of my one of my design failures. I, it's a nut I haven't been able to crack yet, and I, I'm not sure I ever will. Uh, mm -hmm. Again, I'm waiting for that uh, that that uh, lightning to strike and uh, suddenly uh, uh, get an understanding of how to how to uh, resolve the problem. Uh, but it, it, it's a scenario that presents me with. Um, uh, exactly this design issue of of how do I I've got a how do I have a, a a rational actor but have irrational players and make sure the irrational players just don't go off and do wild and wacky things all over the place. What would be an example of that? I'm I'm how does that uh, play into your Falklands design? Okay, well the rational actor in this case is actually the Argentines, who I see as uh, as making a series of very very rational, very considered. Decisions now. Don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, there are. Uh, I mean, the the the, the junta, the, the the military government that ran Argentina in '82 was a. They were a nasty bunch of people, and uh, they were in some way, many ways, very foolish and, and clearly uh, uh, underestimated um, uh, uh, what would potentially happen to them. And, and you know, there, there's a lot of miscalculations all around uh, uh, and, and incompetence all around. But um, a problem I run into with the Falklands as a war game scenario is that when you start talking about this with war gamers, uh, I've noticed this particularly with, with war gamers who have a military background, is they tend to be a little bit over-enthusiastic. And uh, they tend to be a, a lot more aggressive um, in the way that they intend to, to use their forces. Um, and uh, this means that I keep on running into into war gamers who will argue, well, okay, you know, 
um, uh, if the, 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 the sea harriers were, a, uh, uh, were an issue here, the ability of the, of the, the Royal Navy Task Force to, to provide air cover for the landings was an issue here, then the solution to the problem is that we must uh, immediately sacrifice all of our mirages in order to bring the, 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 the sea harriers down. If we hmm. sacrifice the whole of Grupo 8, uh, uh, which was the squadron of, um, of uh, Mirage 3 uh, uh, jets that the the Argentines had, then, then uh, you know, it's worth it even if we take out just a, just a handful of sea harriers. Well, it's just patent nonsense. Um, mm. But uh, it, it's interesting that you run into this situation where uh, uh, war gamers will cheerfully kamikaze um, uh, the, uh, sort of military forces in order to t achieve a particular objective. I mean, how how do you, as a designer, you know, avoid them from doing that? Because if you actually look at what the Argentines did, they made some very very rational decisions, and I think. Um, I, Which well, describe the rational decisions that you're referring to. Well, I mean, one thing you have to do is you have to kind of put yourself in the mindset of uh, a military government. A military. Uh, government doesn't think the way that obviously a de democratic government does, um, nor does it think in the way that, say, a Western military, uh, sort of like a, a democratic military men might think. Um, so, for example, one of the, uh, the features of a military government is that uh, in order to maintain its uh, 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 domestic security, it's very, very important to uh, maintain a force in being. Uh, you know, there's a reason I think why these regimes like to have military parades and, and show off their kit. It's uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's a demonstration of power. It's a demonstration of, of clout. They're, they're, they must maintain the illusion of uh, of power. Um, and so, actually, I think it means that they become much more brittle as uh, uh, as uh, in in, a, in the way that they are they are constituted. And um, it leads them to make some very cautious decisions about, uh, for example, what risks they're going to take. Uh, now, you know, the, the, the Argentine government of the, uh, the, the late 70s and, and 80s, who are, you know, as I say, rather evil bunch of men, um, were not unprepared to go to war. I mean, they, 1977, I think it was, or was it 78, uh, they were pretty much had sent the fleet out to fight the Chileans. Um, yeah, 78, 78, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, over the Beagle Channel. I mean, this was a, an incident that was diffused by a combination of uh, uh, President Carter's diplomacy and a, and a papal envoy. And uh, so, they, you know, they, they were prepared to go to, go to war uh, on occasion, but uh, clearly, with for exam taking the example of uh, sailing the, 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 their task force out to try and engage the... Um, uh, the Royal Navy task force, uh, finding themselves in uh, in very light winds, so that they couldn't un un unable with their rather uh, wheezing old carrier, to, uh, able to launch airstrikes, and then get hit uh, by the uh, uh, by British uh, uh, hunter-killer submarines um, sinking the Belgrano. Uh, you know they made a very a very calculated decision about risk, and the navy you know scuttled off back to port. And it's it's very easy to say, well you know the um, uh, the, the Argentine Navy were, were cowards. Well, I, I'm a little bit more generous than them. Um, uh, I think this was very much a calculated decision. You know, if your, 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 your legitimacy 
as a government rests on your uh, ability to maintain a, a force in being, then the last thing you're going to do is, is you know, sink half your navy in a, in a, in a pointless, uh, futile um, uh, gesture against an enemy. Um, I can e easily see uh, a government like that making the calculation that, uh, you know, task forces come and go, but the enemy on the border, in this case Chile, is always going to be there. And actually, right. it's, that's the enemy that you, you keep your eye on. There, another example of this, in fact, uh, you know, one that's, that's even more, I, th I think, relevant um, was the dis uh, decision to withdraw the Mirage 3s of Grupo 8 after, uh, after the early clashes in, in early May. Uh, where they they actually lost uh, lost some fighters. Uh, again, you know these these Mirage threes were the only all-weather interceptors that the Argentine Air Force possessed. The only all-weather interceptors. So um, without them, they would have been vulnerable to attack by you know the Black Buck raids from uh, by Vulcans, and also to attacks mm -hmm. from Chile. And it was interesting that after being withdrawn, that the, these uh, Mirages were flying patrols over the Andes. Uh, Interesting. So you know, there's another. There's, there's nothing. Again, uh, yet another decision point: uh, the decision not to send the Arctic Warfare Brigades or the Mountain Warfare Brigades to uh, the Falklands. Uh, instead, they were kept on the border. Uh, well, so so that would that would seem to to th these problems that you see that the that you're you're describing all sound like uh, something that could be addressed in a game by simply assigning these. Units, you know, if you're if you're concerned about players being over aggressive, then just assign them a very high victory point value, so that if you lose those units, then you dig yourself a hole that you really can't get out of. Yes, you can do that. Uh, I think it's a uh, a dangerous thing to do. I mean, you end up getting into these uh, these kind of like strange victory point balancing scenarios where there are odd combinations and permutations of of points that can lead to kind of uh, very strange results. I think there's there's the capacity for for griefing and uh, and weirdness in decision making mm -hmm. there. So I, I, I'm kind of offering this up as an example of the kind of thing that uh, that that you you have to be tread very very carefully on. Well, it sounds like you have to you have to uh, choose a situation in which the the host of sort of outside factors don't cause these kind of problems because. Uh, I think what you're what you're describing in in this sort of design uh, failure analysis is the fact that this this uh, situation is uh, remarkably difficult to game in general. Well, actually, the the failure design failure is actually doesn't revolve in this case around the uh, that level of decision making. It revolves around the fact that this was one of those very small, um, uh, very chaotic little wars. Uh, that uh, really came down to um, uh, well, well. Actually, here's the the design problem at, it, at its heart. Uh, when it comes down to it, the Argentines only really had one shot to save the Falklands, and that was in the first three days of Operation Sutton, immediately after the landings. And you actually start uh, looking in detail at what happened there. Something becomes very, very clear. Um, and that is that the, the Argentines would have needed to be very lucky in order to have inflicted sufficient damage um, on, the, uh, on the task force and the landing force um, in order to, to seriously affect the land operations. The one period in which the, 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 the British were exposed, uh, particularly the first two days, which was where much of the stores were unloaded, 
uh, things really came down to uh, some very odd factors. For example, one of those first two days was essentially off limits to the Argentine Air Force simply because of weather. Hmm. So you have almost a situation where a bad weather die roll has won uh, the British the campaign. Um, and the other, uh, the, the, the other day, the first day, if you like, of, of Sutton, um, was a day in which uh, most of the, the air power that made it through to the, uh, the, the landing area uh, focused its intention entirely on the escorts um, outside in Falkland Sound, not, and didn't actually penetrate into uh, San Carlos water itself. And mm-hmm. so, uh, I mean, f- the reasons are manifold. Probably an intelligence failure is a, is, is a part of it. Uh, you know, uh, issues with, uh, you know, knowing where the enemy were, ship recognition, all sorts of uh, factors. Maybe just the sheer excitement of, of young men um, going into battle for the first time and, uh, and making errors. Uh, that meant that you know nobody actually penetrated to uh, the, the the area of water where the the, the critical landing ships were, and so um, you almost have this situation where uh, a series of decisions that were essentially would be almost out of the player's control were what determined the uh, the, the fate of the entire war, uh, because I think once the the landing force gets ashore, once it gets gets all of its stores ashore and men ashore, mm-hmm. then the, the decision the outcome seems almost certain. It would have been. Uh, it was just a, a question of how big the casualty list was going to be. Right. So uh, you know, we we almost have here a game which come, could come down to just like you know a single dice roll or a couple of critical dice rolls. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you have you. Or is this something that you're actively designing? I remember seeing a reference to it on your website, uh, airbattle.co.uk. Yes, I think I've I'm taken not that. Seeing down. it now, <laughs> <laughs> I took it down. Um, although I think the page is still there, floating in the background somewhere. The mm. uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've I've stopped work on it for for now. I actually have got a the armature of design, which I have tested. And it does a lot of a lot of interesting things, a lot of good things. I mean, I, I can uh, I can resolve raids, but it's this uh, it's the key decision making. That's the difficult one. A lot of other game, a lot of other uh, uh, designers have have made games on this subject. I, I'm not persuaded that anybody's made a really good game yet that essentially uh, encapsulates the battle. And I, I think they make far too many errors. Um, in some of the designs, I mean, the common error is the is the classic one of of uh, well, sink one carrier and it's all over, which uh, mm. is something that doesn't stand up to to close examination. I, sp- I spent some time doing a very close analysis, and this is where the storyboarding technique comes in. I storyboarded the the first three days of Sutton. Actually, I storyboarded okay. more than that, but I, I, my focus was on the first the first days of Sutton, and uh, pretty much every single sortie. Every single air sortie um, on both sides, I, I tried to uh, spreadsheet. Uh, okay. Fascinating information, fascinating data came out from that. I don't think anybody has really seen, um, actually written down in, in, in books anywhere, at least not as clearly as, as, as this information came out to me. Um, and this came out really from some discussions with, again, with with uh, with war gamers who tend to be a little bit on the aggressive side. The kind of guys who are saying, "Well, you know, if we just sacrificed all the Mirage threes, we would have, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Argentines could have won the war or turned the tide." And so I, I actually sat down and I, want, I anal- analyzed the the value of the Sea Harrier force to the. Um, uh, the battle, in particular, this key moment of the landings. I mean, everybody had kept their powder dry for this uh, when the invasion started, and when the invasion began, and everybody threw through well, the Argentines threw all they had into it. Um, 
And uh, the kind of fascinating thing that started to come out of this, the picture that began to come out of this, was that uh, the Sea Harriers had done incredibly well. In fact, they pulled off a feat of arms that I think is almost unparalleled in air warfare history. It's, it is really quite astonishing. Um, they do. And the, 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 so the, you know, the value of the, of the Sea Harriers was clearly great. I mean, the things that they did, for example, was that something like 25% of sorties in fact, I think it's almost exactly 25% that made it through to the combat area, were intercepted by sea harriers and were, uh, were essentially um, uh, um, it's like mission kills, either because they were physically shot down or because they aborted and ran. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's, that's, a, that's an incredible, um, uh, I think, you know, uh, f- uh, figure. It's a very, very large number. Did you say 25%? 25%, yeah. Um, seemed, maybe I just don't know anything about air warfare, but that means that 75% of them weren't. So that means that 75% of the force got through. That's the point, which is that uh, you know, that 25% figure is, a, is, is an enormous figure. And it's, it, it's uh, uh, you know, by air warfare standards, a lot, uh, you know, they stopped a lot of aircraft coming in. That, that's a great performance on the Sea Harriers. But, as you say, 75% of the force gets through. Now, if you look at that 75% um, that gets through, you can calculate essentially what their success rate was by comparing those sorties to the number of ships uh, sunk and damaged. And then you can work back in, and I, d- I went through a methodology uh, where I then worked back in. What would happen if we actually took away the Sea Harriers? Let's just imagine that extra 25% of, of sorties got through. And we add in a few fudge factors to allow for the fact that you know, more, um, there'll be more survivors of, the, of, of aircraft and, and so on. You have to do a little bit of work on this. But uh, what I came out with was uh, numbers that basically suggested that the, uh, the number of escorts uh, sunk and damaged would have doubled which is a big num- number, but, huh. um, but nevertheless, it's a number that may well have been um, uh, bearable by the Royal Navy. Um, okay. th- so th- there's this kind of awful, uh, I think, tendency to uh, look at the, uh, by a lot of game designers, to look at this battle and go, oh, well, if we sink one carrier, it's all over. Well, first of all, Sandy Woodward never said, you know, if he sunk one carrier... Uh, we would have been out of the, the action. In fact, he said something in 100 days, something very, very specific, which was that if uh, the Invincible had been sunk, it would have made his task a lot harder. But it would only be if uh, Hermes, his flagship, was sunk, then uh, then he had, would have had very serious doubts about the uh, the ability to continue. Actually, I'm, all, I'm very much of the view that... Uh, uh, if he, even if he'd lost one or even both of his carriers, he would, would have still been made to continue. Uh, that's the thing about British admirals. They, uh, they either do what they're told or they are removed and replaced by somebody who will do what they're told. Okay. Um, and it's not as if the Royal Navy hasn't got a history of operating on hostile shores without air cover. I mean, we can mention Dunkirk, for example, and we can also mention the, um, uh, uh, the evacuation from Crete. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as possible examples, uh, but actually, more probably more to the point, um, the, uh, the the key surface units were probably not the carriers for the British. I would have probably said that the key surface units there were the LPDs, the uh, uh, the Fearless and the Intrepid. Uh, if those have gotten lost, then I think we may be talking about a very different scenario. But again, here's mm-hmm. you know. Um, 
uh, something that I don't think really comes out from uh, a lot of other uh, games on the subject is to the extent to which uh, the LPDs were vital to uh, the effort, because uh, everybody's focused on you know the major surface war units like the carriers. Right. So, is, does that mean that uh, you've you're basically going to shelve this and uh, approach it another time, or are you have you given up on the idea of gaming the fall? Oh no, I, I've got too much reading on it. I mean, it, it may I may come up with a solution at some point. <laughs> I just don't know when. I'm going to have to. Uh, uh, it may just mean I pick up another another book on the subject and it, it gives me this gives me an idea or gives me a clue and so on um well, well tell me this tell me one thing about about that design because I, I was very interested when i looked at that page that you had up it was I, I was looking at it um uh before your the previous podcast but we didn't talk about it because uh obviously there was we had many things to talk about but um you had two air tracks it seems like that was the th- that was what um or, or there were there were just these two tracks on the map um that seemed to kind of dominate it and i was sure i was wondering what 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 those represented and and at what stage of the design that was um i'm trying to remember now what those uh what those tracks were um i'm sure sure i can quite recall actually uh, well the, the the reason that i ask is that uh i i um i i'm fa- kind of fascinated by the idea of 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 the a whole bunch of factors being um, being sort of amalgamated and placed into a track, you know, and you have uh, uh, you know the jamming track in, in in Bomber Command, and just the idea that there's a um, that there's that you can take all these things and then just move them one way or the other, and if you get to some some preset uh, you know target, then something happens, and if if it uh, um, moves the the other direction, something else happens. But point being that uh, it it seems like a very uh, reductive um, uh, sort of game design uh, uh, tool. It's almost the opposite of of, of the cards. It's sort of it, it's a it's something that um, uh, you know takes a lot of the detail and the the hook away from the gamer um, and just reduces it to some sort of level. Um, and as opposed to, you know, cards that can have pretty much anything you want on them. And, and, and even if they don't have a big gameplay effect, they, they, like you said, they cheaply bring in, uh, narrative elements. Um, yes, that's true. Uh, I think it's, uh, they are a feature of games that tend to have a lot of process, uh, in them, um, when you're sort of having to track a lot of different factors, um, I think it depends how much the track is actually working. I mean, if it's just a track that's you know tracking levels and numbers, I mean that's one thing. Right. If the if it's then also giving back information, like if you're in this space, you get a particular number or bonus or benefit, then uh, you know it, it's performing yet another uh, yet another function. Um, I think yes, you're right in the in the sense that. Uh, uh, one of the appeals of cards is it kind of pushes players towards pushes designers, not players, towards uh, mm-hmm. I think much simpler for solutions for various things. It's a it's, it's a neat way of uh, of, of of getting around uh, various things without having to in- introduce a lot of process because everything can be written on the card. Uh, in fact, my one of my first games I used cards on I think the Burning Blue I essentially treated the cards as a if you like three dimensional tables because I could have two dimensional table a two dimensional table printed on the card. Right. About the fact that it was within a deck and could be randomly selected made it right. a three-dimensional. Right. I, I understand. Table. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, tell another question. Um, 
we were talking about we're just talking now about things that you're uh uh working on and and uh might be coming up in the future have you ever thought of of a, of uh working on the problem of a um a b29 campaign or just like a, a pacific war strategic bombing campaign i don't think i've ever seen that done well uh, i'm afraid i haven't and i haven't had a chance to look at the the b29 um game that's out the one that's based on b17 uh, right the, yeah the, i have that that's that's an interesting it's 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 the the funny thing about that is that um from everything i've read the problem to b29s was not really the air defense mm-hmm. they 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 lost a very very small proportion of their force uh, due to uh, due to fighter combat. I think this is one of the reasons why it hasn't really uh, jumped out at me is that uh, when you read the accounts of things like you know the, the, the to- Tokyo uh, uh, raids and so on, is that you know there's not a lot of interaction going on there. I mean, there was some. Uh, I do put into my night fighter games some of the things that they did in the home islands defence, but the, the the what comes out from the accounts was that what was achieved was very small, uh, right. very and minor. The, the, the main, the main, um, the the in that B twenty nine game that you describe, uh, the a lot of the events that can happen, there are, ch- you know, tables, table after table of basically navigation failures and mechanical failures, um, but not necessarily, uh, you know, enemy action yeah. results. So it's a, it's a battling the elements game rather exactly, than necessarily. Yeah, sort of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, battling against another an, uh, an opponent. So uh, yes, uh, I, I I'm sorry. I, I have uh, I can't really think of a way around that. Similarly, you know, the same. I have a similar problem with uh, you know the B-29s in Korea and so on. Right. I mean, pu- putting the B-52s into downtown uh-huh. was a, at least worked as a scenario because there I had a we had a very strong um, there's a very strong story of doctrine and tactics there. Where we uh-huh. have like the early uh, linebacker two raids, where the beef, the buffs uh, came over more or less in single file um, in in neat lines, presented their undersides to SAM missiles mm-hmm. and, uh, and 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 took a terrible um, uh, number of casualties, and right. then they had to go through their own little mini doctrinal revolution, which in fact cost poor old was it? Brigadier Sullivan, I think his name was Brigadier General. Uh, Sullivan, uh, his job, um, essentially bucking the trend, but uh, uh, you know, sad, you know that, that that worked very well in terms of being able to convert that into a game. But uh, yes, a lot of these these uh, strategic bombing um, uh, games, it, it's sometimes quite difficult to tease a narrative out of them. You know, you you can mm-hmm. you can just about do it at the level, the raid level of kind of like Luftwaffe or my own game, Bomber Command. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know where you've got a lot of interaction going on. But yes, I mean the Pacific has never really, uh, really come out with that kind of level of interaction. Yeah, I, I read a book about it uh, just recently. I think it was uh, Barrett Tillman's book. Um, basically, that that uh, you know it did a good job of describing the raids, but then I never really got a sense of what the, uh, uh, the yeah there was there wasn't a really good narrative because uh, you know the sort of the. Um, uh, the J- Japanese industry was, uh, you know, overmatched to begin with, and then the atomic bomb was dropped, and that kind of, you know, that sealed that. So, uh, it's a, it, that's a, I think it's an interesting game design problem that uh, uh, maybe isn't going to get solved uh, anytime soon. But if if you start working on it, uh, let me know. <laughs> well, I, I do try and look for unusual subjects. It's true. I mean, I try to look for things that people haven't done before. I mean, even 
I know the burning blue is on a on a, on a uh, hoary old subject, uh, the, the Battle of Britain. But even there, I was trying to, to my mind at least, find something new in it, which was this, very much this focus on this uh, this raid tactical uh, level in in great detail. And uh, I, I I tend to shy away from stuff that has been done um, done before. Uh, and I find you know with the kind of subjects I'm looking at now, I, I, I'm doing that. I suppose the Falklands, of course, is a game, is a is something that has been done before. But uh, right. even there, I was trying to find a new hook for it. I was trying to find you know how to model this properly. What were the you know look at what the failures were of all the previous games on the subject, and look what I could do to actually solve it. Well, I, I admit defeat at the moment. Uh, maybe yeah. I'll, I'll win that one one day, but uh, you know at the moment I don't have the solution to that. Well, what what are you working on now if you're not working on a Falcons game? Uh, to, to be quite truthful, I haven't yet made up my mind. Um, to a certain extent, it's, it's a decision I'm putting off right now because uh, I'm working on uh, my day job um, mm -hmm. is working designing uh, uh, Far Cry 3, Far Cry 3 uh, which will be uh, coming out later this year. Um, and by the way, everybody, uh, keep an eye out for um, the presentations at E3, and uh, you'll get a chance to see my handiwork there. And uh, uh, I won't say anything more than that. But okay. uh, so I've been very, very busy. We've been, been um, doing a lot of work in the office, uh, a lot of crunch time. So I haven't had much energy to to work on mm. on new ideas. Things that are kind of going around, though. Things that I've got like half designed or partly designed, or you know, lots. Of back of envelope things, although my mm -hmm. envelopes seem to run to 15 pages. But yeah. the uh, one idea that I'm thinking of at the moment is uh, an idea called AWACS, which is essentially taking um, the skeleton of downtown and upgrading it and uprating it and making a game about uh, beyond visual range um, air combat. Uh, okay. So the idea is that, uh, as the name suggests, you are an AWACS fighter controller, and you are controlling uh, a lane, or maybe you know two or three lanes, depending on, on what your responsibility is. And uh, there are raids incoming, uh, you know, plotted as uh, you can probably imagine. Mm -hmm. And then you've got these limited resources of aircraft in order to deal with uh, deal with the various problems. And so you have to make sort of various decisions, uh, maybe based on your uh, 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 you know what your your um, standing orders are to uh, your forces out there in terms of you know what are the, what are their tactics? Do they you know shoot look shoot? Uh, do they uh, 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 what kind of weapon mix have they got? Uh, uh, what reserve are you going to throw in to uh, provide backup in that lane if there's a, a, a demonstrations being made in force in that particular sector? Uh, and so on and so on and so on. So it's uh, there, there's some interesting stuff there, sort of making a somewhat more modern version of downtown, if you like. Um, so that's kind of one concept that they're sitting out there. Another one I'm looking at at the moment is uh, a subject that's definitely not being gamed. Uh, making a game on the Indo-Pakistan Air War of 1965. Which is How do you even find data for that? Oh, there's there's stuff around. I mean, if you uh, if you, you look around, you can find it. It's, it's very difficult. The, 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 the uh, literature is... Um, <laughs> is, uh, is some ways a little bit unreliable. There's an awful lot of accounts that, uh, uh, that, that seem to be um, uh, full of, uh, uh, I don't know, th th there's a lot of politics. It's uh, it, it involved, I think, with the uh, some of the sources. 
mm-hmm. and there's a, an awful lot of blame gets thrown around. It's clear that it was a, a war that, that uh, with a lot of incompetence on both sides, and so there's a lot of blame tends to get thrown around here and there. But uh, there are some good accounts to be found, and uh, if you, you send off to the right uh, 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 to the right places, uh, there are suppliers in uh, places like Hyderabad and. Uh, uh, Karachi and uh, New Delhi that will uh, uh, you can find various reference in English and some of it makes fascinating reading. Really? Oh, well, it's a very very interesting war. It was a war that was was fought with um, uh, you know technology that was just before the kind of modern generation of, of fighters. So this was all like sort of fifties era um, mm-hmm. uh, 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 jet gunfighters. So you have like uh, hunters and uh, and fallen gnats on the Indian side, and you've got like uh, mm-hmm. F-86 sabers on the, on the Pakistani side. Um, some air-to-air missiles. Uh, there's some of the, uh, a handful. I think it's like about eleven or thirteen what? of the sabers was equipped with uh, air-to-air missiles, but uh, it was all very low-tech stuff. Why not make a Korea game? Difficult. Um, I, I've it's one that comes up in conversation. Uh, quite frequently is that you know when are you going to take a look at that and you know I, I've read through the histories and I've got, I've got a half a shelf of it sitting here uh, I've never mm-hmm. been able to find the hook um, really haven't uh, I think this comes down to uh, the problem of scaling again I mean if you go for kind of a raid scale treatment I, I can't see a lot there uh, you know fighter sweeps up to the Alu you know it sounds sounds very interesting on paper but the um, I think in practice the interaction is a lot less interesting. It's not like, for example, in downtown we had this very strong story of here you have these big package raids, and the package raids cons- consist of uh, uh, you know these these, these uh, forces with these very specialised roles, and you're actually looking mm-hmm. at how these roles interact in certain ways. Uh, I think with career it's a very different thing. You know, you, so I, I think you you have to move you have to move out to probably operational level before it starts getting interesting but even there I'm not seeing enough stuff uh, to make an air game on at the moment I mean it may just be I haven't found a hook yet but it's unlike the Indo-Pakistan air war I can actually see some interesting things going on I mean for example there's a lot of uh, you know there's a lot of counterforce work that goes on on both sides where they both had made their air their, their, their strikes against against each other's airfields. In uh, you know you don't even have that in in Korea. You don't have the ability to send you know sabers across the Alu to hit the Chinese at their own air bases. Right. So right. Uh, you know you, 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 it's a little bit frustrating uh, as a scenario right from the right from the off. Hmm. And uh, so I mean, I mean that's certainly another another uh, another area I've been thinking of um, is the Indo-Pakistan War. Um, I've even been thinking of, uh, of of the possibility of a science fiction game. Really? Well, the thing about science fiction is, uh, let me just kind of talk a little bit about this. Uh, I, I have okay. a bit of a bee in my my bonnet about science fiction games, isn't it? I think there's so many awful science fiction games out there. Okay. And the problem I see is that uh, uh, there's a horrible tendency to take um, take an existing war model, warfare model. And then, kind of dress it up with tinfoil and blinking lights, and uh, yeah, I think we've seen this with uh, with games like you know Starfire, for example, which is a classic old uh, uh, right. game from the eighties. Some people, I'm sure, yes. remember it. It was basically it was World War Two carrier battles in space. So yeah, right. Tinfoil and blinky lights, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, playing the Battle of Solomon's Sea. You know, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in that. Uh, I 
so uh, I kind of look at science fiction as something that I'd want to treat in the same way that I would treat a historical subject, with the same kind of rigour that I would treat a historical subject. Come up okay. with something that does not resemble uh, a, a, a recognisable historical mode of warfare and make it, uh, you know, make something novel, make something new and interesting and, and internally self-consistent in, 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 in the way that you've built the world and the scenario. I mean, my, um, my exemplar of this is uh, probably Redmond Simonson's classic old game, Star Force Alpha Centauri. Uh-huh. Um, I, I don't. I don't remember that game. I mean, I remember the game, but I don't remember the details of it at all. So go ahead. Oh, it was a fabulous, fabulous game. I and mean, if if you you haven't got a, got a copy, then then I do recommend trying to pick one up secondhand. There should be loads yeah. of them available. Uh, interesting little trivia quiz moment here, which is that the this is a game that gave its name to a well-known '80s synth band. And if you've ever heard of a band called the Human League, you n now know where they yes. got their name from. The Human League got their name from the game. Yeah. Really? True story. Anyway, wow. the the reason I, I like the game so much was that uh, Simonson had come up with a scenario I think that was genuinely novel and interesting. You know, he it was a game that was uh, based around the the concept that uh, uh, they were modelling a, a volume of space. So it's a three dimensional game. Bear in mind, this is 1974. This came out, and they're already thinking about three dimensional games. A volume of space around the solar system, about 20 uh, uh, light years in diameter. And to get around all that messy kind of Einsteinian relativistic thing, uh, uh, travel, uh, faster than light travel, uh, Simonson came up with, well, we're going to invent some magic, which is basically we're going to have the ability to teleport from location to location. Um, okay, okay, well, this is the scenario he's come up with. So we've got okay. teleportation. So you have these enormous uh, starships that have got crews of psychics aboard them. Uh, I think telesthetics is the name they give them, and these guys can uh, can uh, teletransport themselves uh, and their ship from one location to another location. Okay, so far so good. And but then he kind of starts spinning out his um, his war fighting scenario scenario even more. Um, it, one of his little background tweaks, which I was he clearly did to troll all the the wargamer crowd that was around in the mid 70s, was he said, well, mm -hmm. the crews for these uh, starships. All these uh, psychics, they're all women. There are no men mm -hmm. psychics. So this is, these are wars fought by women. And they don't okay. have, you know, missiles and ray guns and all these kind of things. What they do is they have uh, these kind of psychic fields that they use to knock people out. So this is an entirely pacifistic war that's fought in the future be between these psychics uh, flying uh, from star system to star system with these spaceships. Um, and uh, uh, then what he then adds into it is uh, this lovely little tactical module, which again operates in three dimensions. So you're kind of plotting movement on uh, on a little hex grid, but you're also plotting what the height is above and below the the uh, the orbital plane of the of the solar system that you're fighting in. And the the wonderful thing about this is when you actually start playing it is you realize how important the three dimensions are to the game in a way that I've never really seen pulled off successfully in, in another um, science fiction war game. And I include Battlefleet, Battlefleet Mars amongst that, which is itself a, another marvelous and novel science fiction game. But, uh, you know, this is a game in which, uh, for example, englobing a, a, a target um, with your own forces really does have uh, a great value and importance 
um, in the game. So I mean, when you actually start looking at the way he's, he's broken down the scenario, not just its kind of like background components, but the way that it, it inter the scenario interacts with the game mechanics, what you have is actually a beautifully simple and elegant game that describes a mode of warfare that just doesn't resemble anything, anything that you find in uh, a conventional uh, uh, warfare game. In fact, the danger is is that it's in some ways almost an abstract game. But nevertheless, it kind of it, it, he's done enough in terms of his world building, his scenario building, so that this thing kind of holds together really well, very coherently. And I think um, there's a wonderful interview with him in the Moves magazine. I think from around the mid 70s when the, the game came out, which really mm -hmm. does go show the the level of of rigor that he'd applied to making this this scenario. He'd he'd treated it in the same way that I would treat a historical subject. And so, again, if, you know, if I was to design a science fiction game, that would be my inspiration. Come up with something that, that doesn't look like anything else, and that you've thought through the, the situation scenario to uh, you know, as, 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 as rigorous a degree as you can. And you know, you're probably going through exactly the same sort of steps that I would with a historical game. You know, thinking the scenario, storyboarding it, uh, then you know, applying that, uh, that 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 scenario you've created to the world, and then thinking through what the what the ramifications are. Well, that 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 gives you the big advantage that you're you can make your storyboard anything you want, and then you just have to design the game mechanics around it because obviously you're inventing something new. But the the thing that you described, I mean, it sounds like with the three dimensions, I mean, it sounds like an air combat game. Is there something about the movement that was, you said the teleporting, that, that makes it uh, uh, some, somehow completely different? I think so. I think the, the way that the game played, it had a kind of neat sort of fog of war element to it, in that the way that the information was presented on the map, uh, you could see roughly where enemy forces were, but you didn't know exactly where they were. I mean, for example, you would, you would see their location in, on a hex on the map, but the the other player didn't tell you exactly what the uh, what the uh, what the the uh, uh, the elevation value was above and below mm -hmm. the the plane of the ecliptic. So you kind of had a rough idea of where the forces were, but you never knew exactly where they were. And that that lack of intelligence, which as you probably notice is a feature of all my game, I love the right. fog of war, um, led to this kind of lovely feeling. That was actually, I think Reverend Simonson described in the designers' notes of it was like uh, you know almost like two karate players looking for an opening. And so there was this kind of like little cat and mouse game of trying to outthink your opponents. And I've had some wonderful, uh, wonderful experiences playing the game of, uh, uh, of, of you know, this kind of hor this incredible tension of, you know, uh, is he going to, am I going to sucker this guy or, or is he going to get his, uh, his attack in because I've just left an opening for him uh, before I can get my attack in. And there's, 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 a, there's a beautiful tension there. So is, does that mean that there, you have a science fiction game planned out or you're just uh gonna think about it oh i've got uh, i've got a bible that i'm building for an idea already and uh, at the moment i'm trying to drawing a number of a number of specialists to help me out i've got a you know political scientist i've got some engineers and, and other people starting to look at it and uh, uh because i i want to try and make it um reasonably uh, hard science-y okay. with the exception of a little bit of magic that you have to throw in uh, to make these things work, uh, okay. but uh, yes, you know, I'm 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 trying to build the world first, and then uh, there's there's a lot of thoughts as to how I might present that in, that in the game that's going on in parallel with that. But again, this is somewhere that, that this is an idea that's sitting in the background. There's a there's a tendency, I think, uh, for, uh, for me to kind of like play around with a lot of ideas, and then at some stage I will 
settle on one of these things because you know the, the bomber the bomber barons game which we talked about earlier is another thing mm -hmm. that's floating around in the background and and it may well just be whatever takes my fancy on the day that i finally sit down and make a decision to to make a game uh as to as to what actually comes out i mean i i'm getting to that age now you know particularly as a as a married guy with uh, with kids uh, that only have so much energy to apply to these projects, and so uh, right. having tried right. to design both Bomber Command and Night Fighter simultaneously, I'm I'm not uh, interested in running projects in parallel anymore. It does tend to sap your energies and uh, and yeah. your focus. Well, you came out with two great products, so hopefully uh, I'm going to have time to to play Bomber Command more than just the one time, um, but uh, that'll probably be uh, sometime in the future. But uh, I want to ask, actually, I, I, did you did you enjoy the game? Oh no, I I love the game. I love the um, I love the uh, I'm I'm just you know what I, I'm a sucker for limited intelligence plotted movement games. One of my favorite games uh, that I think I've ever played, and one of the games I played the most uh, when I was uh, at the uh, Asian situation where I could play a lot of games was Flat Top. Ah, right. Um, yes. Yes. Yeah, and and I and I really uh, just love the. One of the one of the best game experiences I think I ever had was a was a um, a play by mail like postal mail um, game of flat top that we did with uh, with an umpire or a game master or a referee or whatever word you want to use for it where uh, we had uh, three players and we just rotated like we would play two of us would play and one of us would would referee and then we'd switch and another person would referee um, and we had basically played these three wonderful games. Um, of uh, a flat top that uh, you know, I would open the mail and I would get my you know my scouting report from my you know from my uh, from my aircraft and I would get my uh, battle report uh, you know and there was this very concentrated uh, you know time of you know there were only a couple as uh, if if you've played flat top you know, or as anyone who who knows about carrier warfare knows that there's there's the time that the the raids are exchanged or somebody gets in a free raid uh, which usually doesn't happen but um a lot of stuff builds up to that but then that's a very focused point of action and then you know then there's that's that's sort of the focus of the game and you either win the game or lose the game or draw the game uh in that time and despite the uh the the large amount of time spent just searching and trying to you know track down contacts and make a plan um, I, I really like that that kind of um, that kind of uh, game, and so Bomber Command uh, does uh, does a nice job doing exactly what I like, which is um, you know I plot out the raid and then see you know what the German's going to do and when he detects it and what that's going to do to you know his response and how far I'm going to get and what the and I loved laying the uh, I loved laying the uh, the bombing counters out. What what the heck is that? I, I have not seen. Uh, um, references to Wanganui and all the other kind of uh, odd um, uh, military nomenclature that uh, that this game used. Oh, really? Um, okay. I have I have not. Uh, it's uh, and so just if you can if you can explain to uh, to our listeners a little bit about the about about that and these this this sort of targeting process because that's that really to me. Uh, captured the game for me well, that was that was that was kind of the high point putting you have a, a map you put your bomber stream on it you put down a uh, target and then you kind of the aiming point and you kind of figure out where your bombs drift and 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 that was that kind of uh, that was sort of the icing on the cake 
how did you how how much research and 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 uh, did it take to sort of get this to a, a level where you thought it was sort of representing something that had actually happened? All right, Ooh, the bombing system went through a lot of iterations. Um, and, uh, you know, some of them quite wacky. I mean, in fact, the, the original version of the, the bombing system, believe it or not, was I had the city maps. The city maps are always there in my head from the beginning. It's one of those examples of, a, of you know, I had a graphic idea, uh, a graphics idea in my head at an early stage, and I, I built the, in some ways the mechanic around this, this, uh, this vision of what I had of, uh, in terms of the graphics. Mm -hmm. So I always had a city map. I, I liked that idea. And the original mechanic I had for it was literally dropping bomb counters onto the, the, the map. Really? From like a, from a height? Yeah, yeah, actually like 18 inches. You know, boom, oh, that's hilarious. Drop, 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 drop it down. We actually play tested with this for ages, and um, there was, it, was a, it was a very interesting mechanism, and we very quickly ran into a lot of limitations with it, not least of which is that things could depend on like the, the, the surface underneath the, 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 the card sheet or hmm. uh, or whether or not you had the nubs cut off the counters ah, or that kind of stuff. I mean, there was there were so many things, and not only that, it just didn't give us the results that we were looking for. And uh, there, there were a lot of lot of reasons why it, it just didn't it didn't seem to work at all. Um, but then, uh, you know, as we went, as, as I sort of my 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 breeding. Uh, and my storyboarding process became more detailed and more complex because you know you, you you build up these pictures over time as you as you you add more detail to them uh, to, to to your research. Then uh, you know other solutions started presenting themselves. Now historically, what the, uh, the the British were faced with when they they raided was always the problem of uh, you know the big first big problem was navigating your way to the target, getting a bomber actually in the vicinity of of the city. And um, uh, it took them it took them a while before they developed some of the, the tools, radio navigation tools, and other things, in order to uh, to actually achieve that. And then they began to develop the means to attack targets accurately when they actually found them. And uh, the, the the obvious way to do this was to uh, uh, mark the target with uh, with flares, so that all the bombers could see where the where the, the target point was, and then they could do essentially, although it was at night, then they could do a, you know visual style bombing on what that on on that target flare. And so they uh, they they developed a system of, uh, uh, of flare marking. And they come up with code names for different things. I mean, New Haven was the, the, the practice that they used um, when the skies were fairly clear. And then they had a system called Wanganui, which was when the, the, there was a bit of cloud around, and a, and a Parramatta, I think it was, when there was a bit of cloud around. Wanganui, mm -hmm. I think, was when, the, when it, was, it was overcast. Um, Wanganui was what they called sky marking, where they would uh, try and identify the rough location uh, using radio navigation aids or some other means, uh, maybe like uh, uh, ground uh, radar systems like H2S, and then they would uh, drop parachute flares over where they thought the target was. And obviously, these these systems, some were more accurate than others. Sky marking uh, Wanganui was was less uh, accurate, or tended to be less accurate than uh, than New Haven, which was done in, under visual conditions. And uh, later in the war, they were developing, you know, lots of little finesses and uh, on this. Uh, we we sort of do represent it in the game, uh, the, the the musical um, uh, bombing techniques, musical Parramatta, musical uh, New Haven. Which is where they use the oboe um, radio radio navigation system to to accurately mark targets, 
and, and Ovo, though it, had, it was limited in range from Britain, it did, did, they were able to drop uh, flares within, uh, within a couple hundred yards of, uh, of the, the aim point. It was a, a very effective system. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I, they, they developed other, other things, you know, the musical system, um, low-level marking became uh, a feature of the late war period where they would send guys down very, very low to uh, check the target visually and place markers. And then there yeah, were I was the- reading a book about Dresden that, that uh, that's what um, one of the things maybe that contributed to the, uh, to the success of that raid was they just had the, um, uh, basically somebody that was, was, uh, Sort of circling at very low altitude, uh, you know, very precisely trying to uh, to mark the to mark the target area. Yeah, and of course they had to do this in a very short window of time. And so, you know, if they they got the the window of time wrong, then uh, the flares might have burned out before the main raid arrives, or maybe the main raid has arrived before the flares are even placed. And so hmm. there there were many many ways this this very complex system could go wrong. And so uh, I, this is one of the reasons I wanted to kind of like model this in detail in the game and, and portray this in, in detail in the game. And yeah. so we, uh, you know, we have all these mechanics, which we, I think pretty much covers most of the sort of situations that happen typically in, in various weathers uh, and, and situations. Yeah. So just to, to ask a question that, uh, that uh, to return to the topic of flat top, have you ever thought of designing an air, a naval air game? Well, the trouble is, I kind of found a naval air game that I really liked, and so uh, I, I have not been really tempted to go there. Uh, th- there's a wonderful game, if you don't know whether you remember it, from a command magazine from years ago called uh, Victory at Midway. Uh, I, I don't remember that game at all. I can't remember. I think it was a Ben Knight design. I, I'm, I'm trying to recall okay. who it was. And it's... Um, uh, yes, a, 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 a fabulous game. It does uh, it does midway with as a double blind uh, game, uh, very effectively, I have to say. And the times I've played it, it's generated uh, very kind of authentic feeling narratives, and it does it with a very low overhead. It's uh, it's quite a f- you know very smooth, slick uh, playing game. And I, I've talked before about you know the mature designer tends to boil things down to a simple source. And I think this is a Victory at Midway is an example of of a game that really is uh, uh, boiled down to its essentials. So there's you know there's, there's detail that is that is uh, uh, is left out, but uh, I think quite deservedly so. And yeah, you're right, it is Ben Knight. Ah, right, cool. My memory hasn't failed me. Uh, there's a guy called uh, Marcus Stumpner who uh, is visiting me here in Sweden in the next few days, but he uh, mm-hmm. he's working on a, uh, I'll say a sequel, I suppose. It's, uh, it's based on the same system, but uh, uh, I think it's called Solomon Seas. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a game that he's already published as a DTP, a desktop published game. Okay. But I think uh, there's a hope that uh, MMP will publish it as a as a, a full proper game once uh, oh, once Marcus gets around to to uh, finishing it. And it's one of these things that he's been tinkering with for a long time. So um, yeah, I mean, uh, that, when you have people who are you know real expertise in that area, and I know that Marcus is uh, is one of those guys. When he's got a, a, an armature as good as as victory at midway to to start mm-hmm. from, then I, I actually don't feel the need to muscle in on that. <laughs> got it. Okay. Well, uh, I'm I'm uh, I think we've had a quite a discussion about air war, uh, air warfare, and um, is there anything that you wanted to touch on that we haven't we haven't mentioned? I can't think of anything offhand. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's been a quite a long chat actually. I'm looking at the timer <laughs> at the moment. We've been at this for uh, at least an, uh, an hour and a uh, half. 
Uh, I'm sure there'll be something like, oh, I wish I'd spoken to him about this. I had this great idea. Oh, my goodness me. And uh, sadly, uh, <laughs> I think I'm running out of puff. So this may be a good time to uh, wrap this up. I think that would be great. Well, thank you for joining us again. And uh, these talks are always, I'm always fascinated by uh, the way a designer thinks. And you have such a, a record of air games uh, and, and building on design that I, I love hearing about how all that came to be. So uh, next time you have a game in process, uh, in full swing and want to talk about it, we can have you on the show again. Oh, I'll be delighted. I, I don't know when that will be. It may be a while now. Um, but uh, That's fine. I'm We're a... not in a hurry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And, uh, yeah, I, I do, do in, enjoy these opportunities to, uh, to chat about the process of design. I always worry that I haven't talked enough about designery stuff. We designers sometimes, uh, I think we internalize an awful lot of our... Um, a lot of lot, awful lot of our processes, and it doesn't actually come out being. Uh, we don't explain ourselves very well. Uh, 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 something I'd like to recommend you, if you haven't already read it, mm -hmm. is uh, uh, my friend uh, Phil Sabin, um, who's the uh, the guy behind uh, the Lost Battles game system. He's a he's mm -hmm. a genuine academic. He's uh, uh, is, he is he professor of strategic studies at King's College London. Um, okay. But he's got a book out now called uh, Simulating War. And uh, you, can, okay. you can get it on Amazon. And I, I highly recommend you, and I highly recommend your readers read it because it's uh, very much a, uh, uh, he does so much more elegantly than me, uh, break down um, war games, both in terms of you know, what they are in terms of artifacts, but also the design processes. And uh, I think you'll, you'll find that there's an awful lot of great information in there. So yeah, Phil, Phil Sabin, um, Simulating War, a uh, highly okay. recommended read from me. I will have it uh, linked at the bottom of the podcast. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. And everybody, thanks for listening. And uh, please, uh, once you're done listening, uh, come to the uh, Three Moves Ahead forum section of Idle Thumbs to uh, discuss it with us. And uh, we will be back next week. Thank you, Lee. Good night. Thank you. Good night.